You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Stephen Boyd. He's the author of Ariel and Elegy Beach. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Thank you very much for asking me. Stephen, you have a really uh, beautiful and interesting uh, conception of what this kind of a break from our world to your world is. And I'd like you to talk about developing that. Did it develop in the prose, or did you have it all thought out and then just explore the world you'd created? Um. With Elegy Beach, it was very much, um, I didn't want to write the book. Uh, the book kind of insisted on stopping my life and writing it. And I, I've never felt a, a stronger division between myself as a person and myself as a writer. The writer had this whole book that he wanted to tell. And I had to sort of give him like attic space, you know, and bring him water every now and then and let him do it. It was very odd. I almost had to negotiate with myself to do it. So in that sense, um, it's a really weird mix of as a reader, you know, who likes to see the story develop as it goes, not knowing what it was going to be. But I, 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 it was uncanny to me that the writer in me knew everything it wanted to do. And what was strangest about it was I didn't, the rest of me didn't have access to that. That sounds very odd, I guess. I, I don't know. Um, so I, I hope that sort of kind of answers your question. Well, you know, what interests me, too, is when you read today, it was a fabulous performance. I oh, mean, thank just you so much. I, I, I'd like you to talk about that. It seems like you must have almost performed it as you wrote it. Um, well, no, I, you know, there's a division in my mind between writing and performing. First of all, I, I, I love lyric prose, and I love prose that sounds good. And to me, good writing sounds good, read aloud, you know. And, and uh, But I think that when people come out to hear a reading, I mean, they could stay home and read it out loud to each other, you know, and, and so I, I feel like I, I that you, you don't want to read to people, you want to tell them a story, you know, and you want them to feel like they're being told a story, and so I, I like to, to try to be conversational. Uh, I work very hard at that. I, I, I do, uh, you know, I don't really read from my pages. I try to have it mostly in my mind. I'll refer to them, um, but I do try to make it almost a soliloquy, you know, and, and, um, uh, and, and thank you so much for, for even asking me that. But I, I really feel that people who've taken the trouble to come out and hear you on a Saturday night, you know, and they could be doing drugs and waking up in their own vomit, which is probably more fun, <laughs> um, you know, um, deserve more than me just kind of sitting down and saying, I was born a poor orphan child who day by day grew larger, you know, or whatever it is people do, you know. And, and I think being told a story is possibly a, a lost uh, you know, something diminishing in this world. And and I think something childlike in us likes to be told a story, you know. You know, one of the things that I love about your world is the way you mingle uh, elements that are unreal with elements that are real and give them such equal weight and also recast the real, for example, the ship you describe, as something that becomes unreal. And that must be fun. And could you talk about that kind of process of the mingling the real and the unreal? You asked the best questions ever. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, in a weird way, uh, I, I think I have a sort of limited imagination. <laughs> I, I don't really, I'm not able to write stories that take place in magic elfie land. Um, there's something, uh, yeah, no, because first of all, there is a magic elfie land. And I don't want to do what I've, I've read before. I'm not somebody who's a fan of something and wants to emulate what he's seen. You know, I, I want to write things that I haven't quite read. Um, 
I, you know, oddly enough, I have a background mostly in, I, I grew up reading science fiction, and I love science fiction, and I think it caused me to have this very strangely grounded, logical approach toward complete bullshit, to com I don't know if I could say that on your show, toward, toward complete, you know, completely unbelievable things. And in my view, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, once said, if I told you I saw an elephant in the sky, I don't think you'd believe me. But if I told you I saw 17 elephants, I think you'd believe me. And I think what he was saying was there's a certain kind of specificity that allows you to shovel in a load of nonsense. That, um, and for me, if you can be a good naturalistic writer, if you can base things in the real world, you know, wandering around in happy elfy land, well, of course there's unicorns. But if I've got, you know, a 7-Eleven with condom wrappers in the parking lot and a unicorn out front going, well, you get the Slurpee and let's go. I, you somehow lose sight of the fact that that's nonsense, that you, you know what I mean? And, and, and basing it in a gritty reality works, but also, I'm like a magician who's distracting you with these details, and what you haven't questioned is, there's a talking horse. You know, you just accept it, and, and I think that the, the reality base does it. My, and I'm so neurotic about it that you can follow the routes of my characters on Google Earth. I mean, it's really that accurate, and I, I, but weirdly, I think it's unimaginative. I mean, I just can't make places up, and I like the juxtaposition uh, as well. You know, one of the things I love, too, is the way that you created the kind of character tension uh, between the, the father and the son in, in this, in this uh, excerpt you read. It's so, it's so it, it lends the whole piece a kind of an emotional weight that makes some of the observations, the unreal observations, really have a, a kind of poignant feel to them. I, you know, I think that whether you're writing about, you know, werewolves and giant ants, I, I, if your life isn't the grist for your mill there, if I can't relate to what people are going through, if they're just sword brandishing, you know, thugs or whatever, I, I just don't care, you know. And, and for me, and I don't know how intentional that is in the sense that I I set out to write this book and, and oddly enough um, found that there was an elegiac tone and that this main character, this narrator, was really there to bear witness to something about his father. And that surprised me. Uh, my father died during the writing of this, and I, I didn't. I mean, I didn't think it influenced it because what was going to happen in the book was going to happen. But certainly, it must have colored the tone, you know. And and I think that there's a strange. Um, I, I don't mean this to sound backpedaling, but there's a certain wisdom to it um, that that I'm proud of, you know. That that whether you believe in these things or not, these this notion that that haunts the book of trying to, be, to to pass the torch to the next generation and realizing that that torch has gone out, that they don't want it, that they have no use for it, is, I think that's very, in a weird way, contemporary. I think we're going through that now in a certain sense. And, and, uh, uh, and embodying that notion of generational uh, uh, bequeath, bequeathment, what the hell is the word, bequest, um, IRA writer, is um, in, in the characters of two people has some power for me. But, you know, I mean, I, I say that like, yes, why, I'm just a genius, I planned it. But really, it's some part of your head that wants to deal with these things that you're not consciously thinking of, you know? You know, that's one of the things I think that's uh, so beautiful about what you, what you wrote was that we really do feel that there's a kind of an unconsciousness happening, uh, that the characters are, are really exploring a world that they haven't quite seen. And, and I think it also... Um, does have the feel, a kind of a, a, a eternal universal feel that uh, I can imagine being in that place now, now 
even though I could never be there. And I, I think that you've captured something in that book, and in that uh, excerpt, that is, I... Who are you when it's time to review on Amazon, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is... That <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> but I think it's something that... that um, even though the world is strange and the circumstances are strange, I can feel it really like rivets me to my place right now. Oh, thank you so much. I, I, I do think that anchoring things in, in real world objects, you know, there's something a friend of mine was working by the Del Mar racetrack and he's like, I own that now. You see it. What, what I like. Maybe it's a sort of hearkening to a supernatural belief or something. The, the notion that. Um, you know the idea with haunted houses that they retain the sense of what has happened there? I, I think there's something about uh, repurposing for purposes of fantasy, you know, a, a, an actual place. The idea that I can drive by these these places right now and these impossible things have happened. I, I, I like that recontextualization. I like seeing them. To me, one of the powers of fantasy fiction and of science fiction is their ability to give you perspective. And perspective is the ability to step away from your current situation. Science fiction is uniquely, you know, a, a position to do that. And so for me, rather than being escapist, I want to take you out of your world and then turn you around and show it. And, you know, I think it helps you to comment on modern, on, on your life or whatever, you know. Now, when you're crafting a work like this, this has a big canvas. So um, talk about creating that wider world and making that believable for for the reader and for the characters. Um, there's a certain grounding in in um, rotting things that you know. Um, the funny thing is nowadays, I mean, that's actually fairly trendy. It wasn't. Um, there was a big wave of things fall in the 50s, of course, following nuclear testing and proliferation. But um, uh, that wasn't hugely popular when Ariel came out. And certainly, I don't think there was much in the way of fantasy that was post-apocalyptic. That was a weird notion then. Um, but uh, I definitely try to ground things in, in a believable decay. Um, and then, um, I, you know, I'm not really interested in the world that forms after that and in, in the way society forms. That becomes a, a science fiction novel about some future society, you know, world building and all. And I'm really interested in what people are when the rules are gone, when they're stripped pure, like in Lord of the Flies or Delaney's Dahlgren or even in the real world, like in the, this isn't the real world, in Burning Man or even the old Renaissance fairs, you know, situations that are called temporary autonomous zones, you know, where um, that fascinates me utterly. And, and uh, what, what kinds of people retain integrity and, uh, or become selfish or mercenary and, and uh, uh, trying to sort of you know, the human race writ small in a way, you know, is, is very fascinating to me. I love that idea of the human race writ small. I, <laughs> I've been speaking with... Oh, what we just need is one good plague, really. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Stephen Boyette. His new book is Elegy Beach. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Thank you so very much. This is a great interview. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.